Hey everybody, bienvenidos, bienvenidas. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. This is Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Nora Han about her new book, Marriage After Migration, an Ethnography of Money, Romance and Gender in Globalizing Mexico, published by Oxford University Press this year. Nora, welcome to the show. Hi, Pamela. Thanks for having me. Nora, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of anthropology at North Carolina State University. Um, most of my work has been on the politics of environmental conservation in southern Mexico. Um, and so this book presents a little bit of a departure for me um, and a retooling into the question of migration. But to be honest, it's a topic that was kind of forced upon me and something that I really had to pursue. Okay, so how did that happen? Tell us how you came to write Marriage After Migration. Well, um, it was about uh, 20 years ago now, back in 2000. Um, I went to Mexico to do uh, field research. And um, I had a project planned about internal migration in Mexico. So I work in Calakmul in southern Mexico, uh, which was an agricultural frontier. So people moving there from all over Mexico to colonize the forests and start their farming and ranching operations. And I had a project to look at the history of that colonization. And it's the year 2000 and um, everybody's talking about migration to the United States. So before that, very few people migrated to the United States, but there was kind of an explosion around the year 2000. So I had to say, what's going on here? Um, but I couldn't talk about it just yet because I was committed to this other research project and it took a, probably another decade to get there, which in the end was a good thing to do because at 2000, it was so new um, that people hadn't really kind of figured out what was going on. And by 2010, we could see some of the early effects. Um, It seemed like I had uh, an original story on my hands. You know, as you know, a lot of people writing about migration and what new is there to say. But in my case, I was looking at it from the very start. Uh, and so that's really what I wanted to focus on. How does this get started and how do families react? Uh, well, your book tells the stories of five women and how their lives changed when many in their families started traveling to the United States for work. You tell us something at the beginning of the book, and I'm going to, to quote you because I think it, it was really interesting. You said, I quote, to the best of my knowledge, none of the women has ever set foot outside Mexico. Yet together they play decisive roles in the migratory endeavor. End of quote. Can you explain this more in detail? I found this fascinating how you talk about women that have never set foot outside of Mexico being such central players of these um, transnational social trends. Oh, for sure. No, this migration was not going to happen without those women and without those women staying home. So that's really important. So uh, the kind of migration we're talking about is men's labor migration. So young men, usually in their late teens, early 20s, 30s, traveling to the United States, um, everybody said it was a temporary trip. Everybody said they were going to come back. So that's really important. But as you might know, um, this is rural Mexico. People are marrying in their teens. So by the time they left in their late teens and 20s, they had wives. They had small children. Um, a few people tended to go as unmarried, but that was, I would say, kind of 
uh, in the minority. And um, so the phrase men's labor migration right there suggests a counterpart. And the counterpart is going to be women. And it's going to be women who don't migrate. And that's a story I wanted to tell because it's a story we actually don't hear very much about here in the United States. And for your analysis, you applied Gloria Gonzalez Lopez's ideas of pleasure and danger. And those are kind of two constants we find in the, in the stories you present to us. Pleasure and danger. Can you tell the listeners what are the promises or dangers of migration these women experienced in general? Yeah, finding Gloria Gonzalez Lopez's framework was key, was really key to making sense of what I was saying. Um, So, you know, the idea is that um, pleasure and danger are tied together. You really don't get one without the other. And so some of the pleasures for women in, in having their husbands or their sons migrate, because I think we're going to be talking about um, the mothers of these migrant men as well, really important actors here. Um, some of the pleasures of having a man migrate could be, well, obviously the money obviously the money. Uh, but this money was really important. We we're talking about a part of the world where at the time, you know, at the most, uh, people are making maybe two to $4,000 a year that for collective household income. And in the United States, men are making that in a single month. So the money and the relief from chronic poverty um, can't be understated. Uh, but also women found other things, you know, they got to buy stuff. Oh, they got to get washing machines. And I don't know if you've hand washed laundry, but it is quite a chore. So um, having a washing machine in the house is fabulous. Other consumer items, really important. Women becoming consumers, purchasing televisions, uh, furniture, things like that. Um, women also got freedom from family life. I mean, let's face it. We all need a little break from family life. We're talking about rural communities where families are living very close to one another. And, you know, it's really nice to get a break from a husband or a son every now and then. So they got that break. And then for some women, having a break from a husband meant that they were also free of patriarchal authority. And they got to do things like go shopping without a husband, leave their house without having to ask his permission. Traditionally, uh, women were um, staying at home and were not leaving their houses without their husband's permission. So um, they got to do these things. All of those things carry danger. All of those things carry danger. Of course, the influx of money carries the danger of return to poverty. The purchase of consumer items carries the danger of creating envy in your neighbors who aren't doing as well because they don't have a migrant. Uh, a break from family life carries the danger of maybe that break carries on for too long. Maybe your marriage starts to suffer. Are you going to get divorced? And then, of course, that break from patriarchal authority. How are people going to react? Is there going to be a backlash? And there was a backlash. So even that freedom carried a real danger to women. Before going further to these stories that you are already outlining for us, I would like you to talk uh, to us about Kalakmul itself. Sometimes when we think about migration, we tend to think about the northern states in Mexico and Kalakmul has a different geographical location and kind of a different story with local migration and international migration. In fact, you tell us that it has a relatively new story of migration when we compare it 
you know, to to border cities. And, and it, that begins in the 2000s. So can you introduce Calakmul to us? Yeah. Please? Well, uh, it's a place close to my heart. Um, and it's on the Yucatan Peninsula. So it's right up where Guatemala and Belize uh, bump up against Mexico. It's in the state of Campeche. Not a lot of people know about Campeche, but that's where it is. Um, it's most famous for the Calakmul Biosphere Reserve. Uh, the Calakmul Biosphere Reserve is the largest protected area for tropical ecosystems in Mexico. It's about three times the size of the Great Smoky Mountains here in the United States. It's bigger than the Grand Canyon. It's a really big forested region. So um, I will say, though, that it's uh, relatively poor. It doesn't have great farming conditions. And uh, as an agricultural frontier in the 1990s, I first started going there in 1994. It was a pretty rough region. Um, it was um, run by caciques and strongmen. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it was a place of in-migration. So it was a place where campesinos or peasants from across Mexico would go in search of land to farm. But the conditions were rough enough. It was nobody's preferred landing spot. Uh, I did some survey work in the 1990s and found that almost all the families who had colonized had first moved somewhere else. Uh, they had left the place where they'd grown up or the, where the people had grown up. Um, in their adult years, they migrated once and then they migrated again to Calakmul. Um, it's also worth mentioning um, that in addition to the poverty, the social instability. So when I arrived in 1994, um, it was the year of the Zapatista uprising that some of your uh, listeners might be familiar with. And the region received an influx of refugees from Chiapas and the Zapatista uprising. So those became uh, some of the people who were central to the book, Marriage After Migration. And um, they were not, however, atypical in the sense that while they were fleeing violence and social unrest that had a name and was visible, um, the flight from social unrest and violence was quite common. Um, so you ha have a lot of people on this agricultural frontier who are really coming out of some traumatizing situations. And um, in, in the chapter where uh, you are introducing Kalakmul uh, and giving us all of this information, you talk about uh, souvenirs, your personal collection of memorabilia, and that's a section I particularly enjoyed because I found really clever how you talk to us about this place that, as you mentioned, is close to your heart, but how these items that you have collected through time actually tell us stories about Kalakmul and globalization. Can you pick one of those objects and make that relationship for sure, us, please? Sure. So one of the things I talk about in that chapter is that because you have this... Um, carpet of forest. Um, and really the place is marketed to tourists. Um, it's easy to imagine that this place was somehow isolated or empty of people or, you know, unconnected from global strands. Um, but the place has been uh, steeped in uh, global connections basically for hundreds of years. 
So let's see. Um, oh, let's talk about uh, the photograph, the souvenir of the photograph. Um, so it's a photograph of a man climbing a tree. And at first glance, you're like, what's holding him onto that tree? He seems to be hovering above the earth. And so at second glance, you have to look a little closer to see that, well, he's holding a machete in his hand. Um, he's tied to the tree with a rope and he's got these stakes on his feet that uh, help him ascend the tree. And the tree he's climbing is the chico sapote um, or the um, chewing gum tree, the chicle. Uh, and uh, Calakmu was part of Mexico that uh, supplied the U.S. market with the original resin for chewing gum in the early 1900s. Uh, so we have to go back to history. In the early 1900s, the chewing gum companies convinced the U.S. military to include chewing gum in the rations of World War soldier, World War One soldiers, and this uh, fostered a boom in chewing gum consumption in the United States. And 95% of the production out of Calakmul went to the United States. The wealth also went to the United States. Uh, so in that section, as I talk about, while uh, Calakmul is a carpet of forests in the United States, that money paid for the Wrigley Building on Chicago's Miracle Mile. Uh, it paid for the purchase of Wrigley Stadium, uh, where the Chicago Cubs now play. It paid for the purchase of Santa Catalina Island, Santa Catalina off the California coast. All of these were owned by the Wrigley Company. All of them were paid for in the space of about 10 years. And it was all with wealth generated from Mexico's forest as well as Guatemala's forest. That's so interesting. There is another book there, or probably somebody has research on that, but that's just very interesting. It's in the bibliography. It's in the bibliography. Yes, yeah. go to the bibliography. I will. Uh, now, Elvia. You start the stories with Elvia, a woman that forced her son to marry in order to be sure he would return from the United States. I would like to know, why did you decide to start the stories of the five women you analyze in the book with Elvia? Mm -hmm. And how her understanding of marriage illustrates how marriage looked like uh, immediately before people from Calakmul began to migrate? Yeah, so I started with Elvia um, because she, when I met Elvia in uh, the early 90s, she was 55. Um, and so by the time I'm writing the book, you know, she's in her 70s. And for me, she illustrates or exemplifies what did marriage look like before migration started? Why did it make sense to people that they could um, go or their, that husbands could go 3,000, 2,000 miles away and yet their marriages would endure? Uh, so Elvia explains what marriages looked like before migration started. Uh, what were the what were the social supports for keeping marriages together, um, and why it made sense for people to migrate? Um, so Elvia, when she married back in the 1950s, she moved in with her husband's family, and this is utterly common not just in Mexico, but in Guatemala and in other parts of Latin America, that young brides move in with their husband's family, that they marry quite young. They're not considered fully adult. They're considered junior adults. Um, and then they effectively then go work for their mothers-in-laws as young brides. So this is what we call in anthropology, patrilocal residence, patrilocal residence. It's crucial to maintaining subsistence farming operations. 
subsistence farming, the workload is incredible. You need a lot of bodies. Uh, you need a lot of hard workers. And so um, fostering these kind of extended families through patrilocal residents is one way to get that. So Elvia both exemplifies patrilocal residents in marriage, but she also exemplifies the kind of work that people are expected to do in their marriage, that marriages are built around shared working on the farm. A good husband works for his wife. A good wife works for her husband. And these values are going to change with migration as ideas of romance and personal satisfaction in marriage become more important. What could you say it's the major uh, change women like Elvia are saying regarding marriage? If you can pick one, what could you say that is striking them the most that didn't happen in the generation that is happening in new generations regarding to marriage? Women of Elvia's generation were utterly shocked that their daughters-in-laws would have any measure of independence because they were accustomed that their daughters-in-laws would work under their direction. So they were completely flabbergasted that when their sons, so what we see is that two of Elvia's sons end up migrating to the United States so that when their sons are abroad, that their daughters-in-laws would go grocery shopping was shocking. That was a man's job in this part of the country. They were shocked that their daughters-in-law would um, independently take children to the doctor because, again, that was often a man's job. Um, they were shocked that they would maybe want to go for a walk for fun. You know, the word in Spanish is pasear, you know, which is just such a simple thing. But they were shocked because their generation was not allowed to do that. That was not part of a wives' prerogative. And well, then uh, I think it is important to talk about the model migrant wife. And you exemplifies this with Selena. What are the characteristics of the model migrant wife? I think you are already telling one of the no's and yes. But also, what does Selena's story tell us about money and families? Because one of the most fascinating things, and there are several, about this story in particular, it is how women use the money that it is sent for, for them. Like, actually, how uh, what they do with money, it is a reflection or how good wives they are. So can you tell us about it? Yeah. So um, model migrant wives walk an impossible line And Selena manages to pull it off um, uh, for a few reasons I mentioned, but I, I, you know, it's one of the things in writing that you can never really capture a person's full personality. And, you know, she is really good at navigating so the social boundaries. She's, she's great. So model migrant wives are very visibly faithful to their husbands and very visibly frugal with money. And when I say visible, you have to announce it constantly because any slip up and the gossip network is going to be on your back. So in her case, even though her husband was in the United States and she was traveling outside the house, she was constantly taking his direction over the telephone. Um, so 
they would speak on the telephone and she would ask him constantly, well, what should I do with the money here? What should I do with the money there? Is it okay if I join the Parent Teachers Association? Is it okay if I do this, if I do that? And then she would be sure to let other people know, he said it's okay if I join the Parent Teacher Association. He said it's okay if I sell cosmetics door to door because she kind of took that on for a little while. So she would announce everything very explicitly and never seem to be um, straying from his direction. I can say that she actually has a lot of pull in that marriage. And I was never really sure to the extent to which these were her husband's ideas or the ideas she planted in her husband. (laughs) Um, So financially, um, she was uh, also very frugal and she stuck to um, what I call almost a kind of uh, Mexican dream. So, you know, there's the American dream that we're all going to, you know, make money and get ahead in life and we're going to do it out of our own uh, work. Uh, And there is a kind of Mexican dream in that sense, you know, that people are going to move ahead in life. But the way they wanted to move ahead was very specific to them. Uh, And the financial mantra in the region was that women should use money to open a store in their house, a mom and pop shop. They should buy land, especially ranch land, and stock it with cattle, or they should send their children to school. Those were kind of the three things. Everybody was building houses. Uh, So I talk a lot in the book about the importance of houses. And that was something Selena did. So building houses was an appropriate thing to do because young people at this stage in life are expected to build houses. Uh, Part of the argument of the book is that patrilocal residence was stifling for both young men and young women. And so part of the goal of uh, migration was to change family life and speed a young couple's path toward independent living. Selena did that by building a house. And she also did kind of sell some bottled water. She opened up a little bit of a mom and pop shop too. And um, I, you know, I, I keep thinking about Selena and all of this, uh, following these ideals and um, being sure that other people are sure that she's following the right path, if we can call it that way. Is there any kind of, emotional burden on that or would you say that is uh, a lot of resilience in that how some women like her learn what are the rules and how they can apply to themselves to to be safe right to be safe you know there's there is the emotional burden I think is enormous the emotional burden is enormous Um, something I talk about in the kind of first chapter and where I kind of describe how I collected this data um, is, you know, is the challenging quality of the interviews that, um, that I carried out. Um, so I mentioned earlier that my, my first research project in this region was on environmental protection. And, you know, when I was interviewing people about environmental protection, the tone was generally one of anger. Uh, so Campesinos were angry about the government passing environmental directives that they thought threatened their ability to feed their families. When I interviewed people about migration, um, the general tone was one of grief. It was one of grief. There was a lot of interviews with crying, holding hands, um, missing loved ones, uh, pain at separation. Um, In Selena's case, 
she really was resilient. Uh, she really was something that the psychologist might call better than well. And she um, managed to navigate this situation um, pretty well, pretty well. But I think she really worked it. So that chapter uh, talks about Selena's move to independent living, which itself was incredible because she had been living with her mother at the time. Her mother was basically her witness to her husband that she was faithful. So in living alone, Selena risked accusations of being unfaithful to her husband. And yet she pulled it off regardless. Uh, I talk a little bit about how she pulled it off. And I wonder, you know, one of the things about writing about marriage is that nobody ever really knows what goes on inside other people's relationships, right? So there's a couple of times in the book where I have to just kind of wonder. Um, and I wonder if Selena's insistence on living alone wasn't um, a way to pressure her husband to return from the United States. Because as long as she was living with her mother, he could say, oh, she's safe. She's with her mom. But when she's alone, now she looks a little bit more vulnerable. There is a constant topic that caught my attention while I was reading the book, particularly in the chapters about Selena and Aurora. And there is the family violence that mothers and mothers-in-law inflicted on daughters-in-law or daughters uh, Mm -hmm. as a decisive factor that shaped their decisions but also how that shaped the relationship with their own families. Like Aurora's mother being hard with her daughters in order to prepare them for a life with a mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. So what is the, the role of uh, violence in these relationships? Just talking about women uh, there. Right, right. That's a great question. Um, I should say I do kind of worry that I might have overstated that part of the dynamic now looking back. Um, I think violence against, uh, from directed toward young wives um, was probably more common in the senior generation that Elvia represents. And certainly in the chapter on Aurora, I know her mother did tell me that Um, So this is a woman I met in her 40s, and so today this woman is in her 60s, and she married at 13, and she did take a beating from her mother-in-law every time her mother-in-law found her housekeeping lacking. Um, So my sense is that that kind of um, violence by mothers-in-laws directed toward daughters-in-laws is something that tends to be more restricted to the senior generation, that the junior generation didn't really get that. Um, But certainly uh, violence by husbands directed toward their wives is a real thing. Uh, And one of the um, pieces of information for me, uh, digging through the ethnographic literature on domestic violence um, in Central America that was really illuminating was how mothers-in-laws might encourage their sons to discipline a young wife because of the enormous insecurity. So if we think about an older woman's, um, you know, an older woman's ability to take care of herself, she's really reliant on her children. And a son kind of has a choice. Is he going to take care of his mother or is he going to take care of his wife? Um, Now, and ideally, 
people can all take care of one another. Um, but we know that there isn't always enough to go around. Uh, and so part of what the research talks about is that mothers-in-laws um, might pressure a son to discipline a wife in order to remind him that she is the primary loyalty and he should take care of her no matter what the daughter-in-law says. So this kind of friction, this underlying friction between mothers-in-laws and daughters-in-laws over a young man's care is enduring in patrilocal marriages. And then when migration steps in, this friction gets centered on remittances. And so effectively, both of the women are in competition for a young man's remittances, but they have different reasons for wanting the money. An older woman wants her husband, her son to support her financially because really uh, I explain a little bit about the um, marital bargain and how husbands don't necessarily feel a need to give their wives money. And frankly, in this part of Mexico, a lot of husbands just didn't have the money to give. So when a mother sees a son working, she thinks, oh, now I have some support. And frankly, she needs that support. It's rough. But when a wife, a young wife in her late teens and her early 20s sees a husband working, she's thinking, oh, now we can build our house. And now we can live alone and have our family separate. So they both are in competition over a young man's earnings, but they want it for different reasons. And there is another topic now that we're talking about how these elements shape families before going to Aurora's story. Um, I think it, it, there was a, a moment where you talk about how also money can change the relationship uh, uh, these young women have with other members uh, of the family, particularly uh, brothers or, right. or parents. So can you tell us about how those dynamics work with remittances or where these women are having money and they can maybe pay them to help them build a house? Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because there's, there's just a couple of sentences in there, but it's pretty potent information. Um, so uh, prior to the advent of international migration, in this part of Mexico, uh, young women really didn't have cash at all. They didn't have cash. So it was very surprising for people um, or a novelty that they had to adjust to that all of a sudden young wives are handling the remittances. So when their husbands are abroad and these young women are charged with building a new house, of course, they're going to turn to their brothers and their fathers. And the family allegiance, then she kind of gets pulled back into her family and they really appreciate her. I mean, the idea that a 22-year-old could be a principal financial support for her families You know, especially in patriarchal Mexico, where people are generally looking toward men as uh, money earners. It's it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Um, but those women, of course, they also need that support uh, because they're going to need a counterbalance to their mothers-in-law's doubts. Why are you leaving the house? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? So for her to kind of take refuge within her own family, it also provides her a kind of protection. She can say, You know, I was with my brother buying housing supplies. Uh, I was with my father while we were working on the house, things like that. So she, she kind of needs to stay within the family bubble to protect her honor. And, well, talking about honor and protection and these dangers, let's talk about Aurora. 
Okay. Which is like in contrast of the in contrast to the model wife, uh, she broke gender rules by acquiring a paying job, getting a job in a cantina, which is going to have a lot of implications working there, and having a good time uh, and enjoying her job. Um, can you introduce us to Aurora's story and what are the consequences of breaking? gender rules in a community like Calakmul. Yeah. So I first met Aurora back in 1994 when she was 13 years old. Um, and uh, in this part of Mexico, uh, people tend to cook over a fire, which is uh, something I don't know how to do. So I had to get help with my daily meals. And I went to Aurora's family uh, to eat. And that meant um, Aurora as a 13-year-old was her mother's helper in the kitchen. At this time, um, people were mainly eating handcrafted tortillas, and there were no electric um, mills, so molinos uh, were not available in the region. People were making tortillas using a hand-cranked, a hand-cranked mill. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but this is... Uh, quite an exercise, uh, and it's not uncommon to walk into a house and see a 10 or a 12-year-old girl turning that stiff crank and uh, throwing her whole body into the exercise, rocking back and forth, and they'll do this for about an hour a day. So this was the 13-year-old Aurora, as I knew her, uh, someone who got the job of working that crank uh, for her mother, who was busy with 10 other children. Flash forward, she's now 28 years old, and she is the subject of the gossip network, that she had apparently done all these scandalous things, that she'd gone to work in a cantina, that she had a taxi driver boyfriend while her husband was in the United States. So I went to talk to her about what this meant for her, because of course, as we all know, public gossip is very different from people's private reality sometimes. Um, and, you know, she had a really uh, empathetic story to tell. You know, when she, her husband went to the United States, she was hearing word that he was fooling around in the United States. And she had good reason to believe this information. He was traveling with neighbors and relatives who could have been telling their spouses about his extramarital liaisons. And people started saying to her things like, you know, I heard he's getting married in the United States. Or I heard he's not coming back. You'd be smart to get a job. And she has three kids. So she needs to protect herself. And, you know, she has a fourth grade education. And what else is she going to do? So, you know, basically Campesino women, um, their job opportunities are enormously limited. You know, maybe a housekeeping job, maybe a job as a waitress. And in her case, she did get that waitressing job and she got it at a cantina. So she's serving beer. But in Kalakmul, cantina waitresses have a second job that goes without saying, which is they're selling sex. And in Aurora's case, she uh, swears that that is not, was not her job. Um, but there's all kinds of ways kind of through flirtation um, that you can earn a lot of money on the side. So she did earn a lot of money. And by my calculations, she earned basically more than a police officer in the county. It's the highest paying job available to women. And frankly, she loved it. She thought it was a blast. The cantina is a party atmosphere. She was having a great time. So I want to point out to listeners that up to this point, 28 years old, 
she's been a workhorse. First, she was working for her mother. And then, of course, she got married. She moved in. She's working for her mother-in-law. And then once they have an independent life, she's working for her husband and her children. So this is the first time she's working for herself. This is the first time people are saying, we like the work you do. And she's getting really good money for it. So she's really valued. The backlash was considerable. It comes in the form of gossip. It's uh, the pressure is intense. Um, and most of the gossip is coming from within your family. So in her case, of course, her mother-in-law, who lives 50 yards from her, is calling her husband in the United States constantly. You know, oh, your wife has left the house again. Oh, your wife has gone shopping. Your wife got a job. And her husband is pressuring her to leave the job. But she doesn't really know what his life is like in the United States. She doesn't know if these rumors are true. And in that chapter presents some interviews with him where he admits to one girlfriend and suggests that there might have been another. So she had real reason to fear for her marriage. He ends up getting deported. He ends up coming back to Mexico, uh, back to the marriage. And this kind of ends her life as a cantina party goer. He comes back with, um, well, he, he was a drinker before that, but he comes back with an exaggerated drinking problem, which I, I think we'll be talking about that, uh, and um, inflicts his uh, frustrations on her. Uh, and so he uh, enters the cantina. She leaves the cantina. He enters it. Uh, but when he comes home drunk, he does hit her. So those are kind of the prices that she paid for, um, for what she lived. And, well, you are already paving the way for what uh, Chapter 6 is, and the title tells us a lot. It's Rosario Coping with a Husband's Return. In this chapter, to explore how people in Calakmul viewed the United States as a land of excess, a place where men could get lost in drinking and womanizing. Some women like Rosario, and as we saw in the case of Aurora, face infidelity, alcoholism, and physical violence, verbal abuse. How can we explain the fact that migration seemed to foster substance abuse and womanizing in men who showed no inclination toward these problems? How do women cope uh, with these experiences? Yeah, so this is such an important topic, and I want to handle it very carefully um, because when I wrote about this, to be honest, I was afraid. There are a lot of stereotypes out there, right, about drunk Mexicans. Right. A lot of these people I'm working with are indigenous. There are certainly stereotypes about drunk indigenous people. And I really didn't want to contribute to those stereotypes. Uh, I do include in their information, we have good research that actually says that um, migrants uh, in the United States who are undocumented may uh, consume less alcohol and fewer drugs than their documented counterparts precisely because they feel like they have to keep on their toes uh, in front of immigration authorities. So I think we don't have the full picture here. Um, and I want to emphasize that I'm really only talking about this specific group of people and their experiences. Um, and their experiences were, uh, frankly, rough. Um, we have some information about what are the risk factors that encourage uh, drinking and uh, drug use in the migration stream. I don't even touch the trauma of the border crossing. So uh, one of the 
that was kind of a decision I made here in this book because these women only have a very rough understanding of the border crossing. Uh, and I didn't want to detract from their perspective, from their understanding of the migratory endeavor. But we know that the border crossing is traumatizing. Uh, and it would be certainly reasonable for any human being to respond to that trauma by trying to numb their feelings through drug and alcohol consumption. But men in the United States, uh, so men out of Kalakmu were mainly working in roofing here in the Southeast. So uh, Alabama figures prominently. Um, they were roofing. They were also building industrial chicken coops. Uh, so if you went to a high school in Alabama in the last 10 years, it's possible that your high school was built by somebody um, who grew up in Kalakmu. If you went to a pharmacy in the U.S. Southeast that was built in the last 10 years, it's possible that pharmacy was built. Uh, a big box store, a Walmart, uh, a Target, any of those. The work is pretty grueling. Uh, and so one of the risk factors to drug and alcohol abuse is working 60 or more hours a week of heavy physical labor. They do that all the time. Uh, some of the other risk factors include uh, living in rural areas where there's very little entertainment. Uh, these are rural folks coming out of Kalakmu. They're more comfortable living in rural areas in general. They don't even like living in small towns in the southeast. So they are, by definition, living in places with very few entertainment outlets. We talked a little bit about the family conflicts, you know, with Aurora. They're hearing this stuff on the phone. They feel terrible. Uh, and so shame, shame at not being able to settle the disputes that are 2,000 miles away will also encourage drinking. Uh, and then finally, of course, all the prejudice that they encounter in the United States, the anxiety of being undocumented. Um, there's a lot encouraging them to drink, a lot. Uh, most of this, again, is outside women's viewpoint, perspective. They just can't see it from where they are. So they don't understand the stressors. Um, I wrote this chapter uh, because I would regularly ask the wives of immigrant men, you know, was your husband different when he came back? And in a way, uh, as an anthropologist, I learned it was a bad question because I was assuming a, a kind of psychological orientation that, um, uh, that uh, they just don't have. Um, but their answers were telling nonetheless. They would say, oh, he was the same, only he drank more. Only he drank more. And so I had to kind of include in this book that perspective. What does it mean to have a husband who returns the same, but he drinks more? And well, I, I still have a couple of questions more, but one, uh, I want to ask you some uh, methodological thing, I would say that for us that are not anthropologists might be curious because um, it's really interesting how in the book, we can see those parts of your research when women or men ask you about uh, their husbands or their wives when they are talking to you. They say, hey, hey have you seen uh, my wife, how she was dressed? I remember one. Or yeah. when they are asking about the weather because the husband is not sending enough uh, money. As a researcher, what what is your Position on that? How do you use those questions for your research and how do you answer to those questions? Okay, so uh, the book talks a lot about gossip, 
Gossip is incredibly important. Uh, and it, I rely on it as a researcher. You know, I'm tapping into the gossip networks all the time. Gossip is also uh, information sharing. It's basic information sharing. How do we figure out what migration means? What's going on here? This is a new thing. Uh, it's, it's the news source. I would say as a researcher, uh, a long time ago, I um, learned that I really did have to share information. It wasn't fair and people didn't like it if I asked all the questions and I didn't distribute information. It just, yeah, it wasn't fair. But as we saw that since gossip can be both negative and positive, I made the choice to not share negative gossip. I would share information, but it would always be good news, something nice that people were doing or something very bland. Or if there was a concerning thing, you know, if there was a health problem that, you know, it would be nice for a family to know about or something. So that's kind of how I navigate that tricky terrain is that I don't share something that I think would um, create a problem or exacerbate existing conflict. I shared these questions, you know, what was my wife wearing when you were in Mexico? Or, you know, my husband isn't sending money because he says it's raining and so they're out of work. Are other wives hearing the same story? I shared those questions because when I first heard them, they took me aback. I was like, what? You're asking me if it's raining in Alabama? This does not make any sense. And as an anthropologist, I know that when I run into something that doesn't make sense, that probably cultural differences are at play. And that is a moment of exploration. Why is she asking about the rain in Alabama? It's weird. Okay, that makes sense to her. I have to figure out how it makes sense to her. And it was really indicative of a lot of anxieties. Is it raining? Is he not sending money because of weather? Is he not sending money because he has another woman he's spending on? Am I a wife at risk of abandonment? That's what that question is asking. Yes. And with all this focus on women, which is fascinating and it's a really, really engaging book, but what this focus on women experiences of these women that have been affected by migration without them traveling to the United States, what are the nuances their stories are telling us about migration? What are the lessons we can learn from their experiences that we don't learn when we just focus on men traveling back and forth from and to the United States. Yeah. That, I think what we don't learn when we focus on men is that migration is about marriage. Migration is about marriage. Why do you want that money? People say migration is about money, but it isn't. Because what are you going to do with that money? Right. You're going to build a family. Marriage is about migration. Well, no, migration is about merit. <laughs> um, you also learned that if marriage is why migration starts, you know, I'm going to go to the United States to build a house. We're going to get the money to build a house for my wife and then we're going to send the kids to school. Marriage is also what can keep migration going. So men return. It's hard to reintegrate to the family. It's hard to rebuild a marital relationship after a four and five year separation. So how do you resolve that? Go back to the United States. 
You can be a great husband there by sending money. Marriage can also bring an end to migration one way or the other. A marriage might fall apart and then he stays in the United States and his life of going back and forth has probably come to an end. Or he comes to the United, he gets to Mexico and his wife maybe puts down her foot and says, enough, enough. Or maybe he sees this is a risk to my family and it's not worth it anymore. I'm going to stay put. So what we miss with the focus on men is that there are no men without the women on the other side. Yeah, that's so right. And well, Nora, I don't want to end this conversation without asking who would you like to read your book and what would you like uh, those, you, those readers to take from your book? Yeah. Um, when I wrote this book, I was keeping very firmly in mind my students, my students. Um, they're nice kids. They're really nice people who are trying to figure out what's going on here. You know, how do I see past all the rhetoric the hyperbole, the shaming of migrants. So I kept them in mind. And, you know, the book is part of a series that's geared towards students. It has a companion website. The website has activities that are online friendly. Uh, it has discussion questions you could build essays around. It has key terms, all of that. But the other people I had very much in mind as I wrote this book uh, was that for many of the readers in the United States, this book is telling the story of their parents. This book is telling the story of their grandparents. This is how the Great Migration from Mexico and even from Guatemala um, starts. And this is how it keeps going. So I thought about um, those people and You know, family dynamics are complicated. I talk a lot about divorce. I talk a lot about family pain. Um, I just hope that this book made a little more sense of everything for people. Well, Nora, thank you. Here it's hoping that a lot of students in the classroom read the book and people outside the classroom read the book and find a, a lot of uh, lessons there or, or, or identify themselves with some of the stories uh, And hopefully your book is going to start conversations inside the classroom and outside the classroom. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really, really enjoy having this conversation with you. Take care. Thank you, Pamela. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time. Hasta pronto. Gracias. <laughs>